How gracious, Heavenly Father, we want to praise you and thank you for the freedom we have to read from your word and to hear your word preached. We pray that you would help us not be distracted from um, this morning's busyness as we got to church, but rather you'd help us to be still and know that you are God. We pray that you would help us to listen well um, to your word and to Stephen as he preaches to us. And Father, please continue to transform us um, through your word and by your spirit for your praise and for your glory. Amen. Um, If you don't have a copy of the Bible, um, pop your hand up and Val will race over to you or, or Simon. Okay, looking at Luke chapter 19 verses 28 to 48. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. As most of you know, a few weeks ago, I headed over on holidays to Kosciuszko National Park. We left in the afternoon and um, for some reason on this holiday, we were leaving everything to the last minute. So we hadn't booked accommodation for that night when we left and we were trying to book it along the way as we were driving along. We got to Oyen, which I didn't know how to pronounce till I got there. It was about 8pm at night. 
was dark. We still hadn't heard back from the accommodation we're trying to book in Swan Hill. So we made the decision that we were just going to drive through the night, which is something that I've never done before. We'd never done as a family before. And I'm not sure it's a wise idea with four kids in the car. So for me, it felt like an epic trip. Kathy was working hard to keep me awake, creatively coming up with conversation topics. At one point, I think we were a little bit delirious at this stage. We were even discussing baby names. <laughs> the idea of having a fifth child sort of shocked me enough to be awake for a couple more hours. <laughs> but in the, in the end, in the early hours of the morning, we, we just couldn't go on and we pulled over at a truck stop just before Albury and tried to sleep. For the first hour, I had my legs dangling over the steering wheel and my head against the glass window until I realised that one of my kids had two pillows while I had none. (laughs) After I wrestled that off him, I managed to get a little bit of sleep every so often, him waking me up, uh, banging his head on the glass window saying, I'm not going to make it through the night. (laughs) And at 5.30am in the morning, we gave up and kept going. So you can imagine what we were feeling when at 2pm we arrived at our destination in Kosciuszko with our dodgy old wind-up caravan still in one piece, amazingly. The bikes somehow still attached. And as we got out of the car, there at a beautiful creek in the bush with the kangaroos literally hopping around us, the mountain peaks in the distance and the trout just jumping out of the water saying, catch me, cook me. You can imagine the, the feeling of joy that our journey had finally reached its end and it had all been worth it. Well, as a church, we've been on an epic journey with Jesus for a long time now, since way back in January, actually, 10 chapters ago, when we started this series. Do you remember the first verse we looked at in this series? It was in Luke 9, 51, at the start of the trip. At the time, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Today, we finally see Jesus arrive at his destination. And it makes you wonder how Jesus feels about arriving. Because we see how his disciples feel. Did you notice that in in verse 37? When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. The disciples are ecstatic. Their joy is just overflowing. And Jesus? Well, we see how Jesus feels in verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. The disciples are rejoicing and Jesus is weeping. It's such a contrast in response. What's going on here? Why is Jesus weeping? Well, he's weeping for Jerusalem And we see why in verse 42. He says, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Jesus is weeping for Jerusalem because it doesn't know what would bring it peace. Which is a tragic irony because Jerusalem is supposed to be the city of peace. Its very name means that, City of Peace. Pilgrims on their way up to Jerusalem 
would sing the song of ascents in the Psalms. So it's possible actually that Jesus and his disciples have just sung Psalm 122. Part of it goes like this, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. It's possible that Jesus and his disciples have just finished singing that. You see, Jerusalem was supposed to be at the centre of God's plans and purposes for his world. It's almost like heaven and earth meet in God's temple in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem was supposed to be the place where the the peace of heaven spilled out over all the earth. But instead, as Jesus finally reaches his destination, he finds a city that's completely oblivious to what would bring it peace. Makes you wonder why, doesn't it? Why didn't Jerusalem know the things that make for peace? What was it that it lacked? Well, today we see the three things that they needed to know to know peace. In verses 28 to 40, we see that to know peace, they needed to know joy. In verses 41 to 44, we see that to know peace, they needed to know sorrow. And then in 45 to 48, we see that to know peace, they needed to know cleansing. So first, to know peace, they needed to know joy. They didn't know the things that would bring them peace because they didn't know joy. They didn't rejoice at Jesus' coming. Now, that seems to contradict what we've just had read, doesn't it, from the passage? Because the people were rejoicing. So let's have a closer look at what's going on. See, what's going on in verse 30 with the whole cult and all of that? Everything that Jesus does as he enters Jerusalem here is for a purpose. He wants people to understand his arrival on on his terms. And so he's riding the colt of a donkey is a powerful message. And it's a pretty clear message if you know your Bible. Because Jesus wants us to be thinking of Zechariah 9 verse 9, way back in the Old Testament, which says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, what's Jesus' message by riding in on this colt? His message is that he's Jerusalem's king, bringing righteousness and victory in humility. And his message is, how should they receive this king? With rejoicing. But is that what the people of Jerusalem do? Well, in verse 37, we read, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They rejoice and they recognize him as king, but who is it that's rejoicing? It's the whole crowd of disciples. It's the pilgrims going with him into Jerusalem who've been with Jesus and and who've seen him at work. We see this 
clearer uh, even than here in Matthew 21.10, which says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The crowds joyfully welcomed Jesus, at least for the moment, but Jerusalem doesn't even know who he is. Jerusalem doesn't receive Jesus with joy. And actually, this is what Jesus already told us to expect. Back on the journey to Jerusalem in Luke 13, 34, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is almost exactly what's said as Jesus draws near to Jerusalem in verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But it's Jesus' disciples and not Jerusalem who say it. Jerusalem, like the Pharisees in the crowd, fail to see the significance of this day. See, the Pharisees aren't rejoicing. They want Jesus to silence the crowd. See what they say there in verse 39? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They fail to see the significance of Jesus and this moment. A moment so significant that Jesus says that if people aren't praising him, creation itself will call out and praise him. Why is this day so significant? Well, it's because this is the day that God comes to his temple. This is the day of visitation, a day that was longed for for centuries. Some of the closing words of the Old Testament longed for this day. Malachi 3 verse 1 said, The Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. This is that moment one of the greatest days in history. Here is the supreme coming of not only a prophet, but the Son of God. The very purpose of Jerusalem has arrived at her gate. The very key to her peace is there. And is His coming greeted with joy? Well, we see how He's greeted In verse 47, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. And later on in Luke, we read that it wasn't just the leaders, the people also wanted him dead. Jerusalem lived up to her reputation as the city that rejects God's messengers, even rejecting the final and greatest messenger from God, his own son. She didn't know what would bring her peace because she didn't recognise her God and she didn't know joy at his coming. I mean, imagine if you were a soldier in Afghanistan, had been fighting there, and you return home after being deployed and you come to the airport to find that none of your family is waiting for you. You catch the bus home and your wife's out shopping or your husband, the kids are at the beach I mean, it'd be heartbreaking. And for Jesus, we read, it's heartbreaking. 
He weeps to find his city, which exists for this very day, completely unready and uninterested in his coming. Well, that's them. What about us? And we stand at a different point in history to Jerusalem. But even still, when you read this, we've got to ask ourselves, are we like them or are we different? Do we know the things that make for peace? Or will Jesus weep over us too? As people who stand on this side of the resurrection, we know that Jesus will come again. He's coming back. And so, in a real sense, our day of visitation is still ahead of us. And so, in some ways, the question, the same question applies to us. Will we know joy at Jesus' coming? Now, one way to answer that, to figure out our answer to that, is to ask ourselves... Do we want Jesus to return? Do you want Jesus to return? Can we echo the closing words of the Bible? Come. You know, Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. And are we crying out, amen, let it be. Come, Lord Jesus. And is that what our lives cry out in the way that we live? Do our lives show that we'd be filled with joy at His coming? You know, are we metaphorically waiting at the airport? ready and longing for his return. When I was young, like at university, I actually really hoped the opposite, if I'm being honest. I hoped that Jesus wouldn't come back too soon. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. I didn't want him to come back because I wanted to work and actually put into practice all the annoying things that I was learning. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have sex. I wanted to have perfect little children I was, just, I was mistaken about more than just what kids would be like. I was mistaken about what life is all about. I was mistaken about what my life is all about. Jesus. To know peace, they needed to know joy at Jesus' coming. And we too need to know that true joy comes with Jesus' return. This brings us to our second point. To know peace they needed to know sorrow. The second reason that Jerusalem didn't know the things that would bring peace was because they didn't know sorrow. While the disciples rejoiced, Jesus wept. He saw the fate of Jerusalem. Look in verse 43. He said, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They'll not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus knew that their rejection of him was a rejection of their only hope for peace. They refused to embrace a humble Messiah and instead they embraced a proud nationalism that in the end led them to rebel against Rome. And in AD 70, the temple and a lot of Jerusalem was completely destroyed. All of the temple that's left, you can still see today, is just a few blocks called the Wailing Wall. Over the centuries, Jerusalem had rejected God again and again. This had led to their exile from Israel for a time. But even when God brought them back, their hearts were still unchanged. 
this city still failed to live up to its calling to be a light to the world, an example and, and a blessing to the world. It still wasn't the city of peace that it was supposed to be. Now, this should have been for them a cause of sorrow and, and tears, not indifference like so many of them, and not pride and arrogance like the Pharisees. How could Jerusalem possibly know the things that, that made for peace when she was just happy with the, the status quo? Well, again, that's them. What about us? We're not Jerusalemites or even the people of Israel. But actually, we're even more than this. The Bible tells us we're the people of God. We belong not to the earthly Jerusalem, we belong to the heavenly Jerusalem. And we ourselves, the church, we ourselves are God's temple. On our day of visitation, when Jesus returns, will He know us? Finding the things of peace, knowing the things of peace. Or will He, will he find us weeping over the, the sin in our own lives? Now, this question, I think, is a hard one to think through. Do we feel sadness at the sin in our own lives? Uh, many weeks here at TNE, we, we publicly confess our sins. And I don't know about you, but I often struggled to feel true sorrow at my failings. I feel like the words of those kind of prayers just sort of pass, me, pass over me. But at a church that I went to when I was at Bible college... They used the Book of Common Prayer from 1662. Uh, is anyone familiar with that prayer book? A few people? Now, in that service, they always had this confession that I found pretty uncomfortable. I don't know if it was just because the words were so foreign that you had to concentrate so it couldn't pass you over, but it went like this, and I always found it quite confronting. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Maker of all things, Judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word and deed against thy divine majesty, provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. It's not just the language in that prayer that's foreign, is it? It's the concepts as well. In our modern world, the idea of bewailing our wickedness, the idea of being burdened by our sin, sounds like a psychological condition. You know, what we could easily do instead is accept our sinfulness or justify it or be indifferent to it or to console ourselves by comparing ourselves to others. But the right response is to feel sorrow. Not a kind of self-destructive sorrow. Do you know the kind of sorrow I mean? The sorrow that could imagine that we can somehow atone for our shortfallings by beating ourselves up. That's not the kind of sorrow that we should feel. But a sorrow that longs for a saviour who's coming I don't know about you, but sometimes when I struggle with the same old sins, pride or lust, indifference, self-righteousness, doesn't it just make you long for a time when we won't need to fight anymore? 
Well, that time of peace is coming when Jesus returns. Sometimes as Christians, we we can feel that, that sorrow and that longing for Jesus' return for ourselves, but we actually don't feel sorrow at the sins of our world. Leonard Ravenhill, who is an English evangelist, he once said, the world has lost its power to blush over its vice, the church has lost its power to weep over it. See, we don't just weep over our own rebellion against God, we weep over our world's rebellion too. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who knew this full well. He was a Christian in Nazi Germany and he was killed in the end for opposing them. Listen to what he once wrote. Why does the Christian church so often have to look on from outside when the nation is celebrating? Have churchmen no understanding and sympathy for their fellow men? Doesn't that ring true today? Why do we so often have to look on from outside? He goes on to write, Nobody loves his fellow men better than a disciple. Nobody understands his fellow men better than Christian fellowship. And that very love impels them to stand aside and mourn. There are many times that we can't join our world in celebrating. But instead, we've just got to stand on the sidelines and mourn. Like when our world is celebrating at the gay Mardi Gras. Like when Airbnb or or Qantas encourages us to, to wear the acceptance ring. Or when our world is rejoicing over certain movies or certain shows like Game of Thrones or things like that. We have to stand on the sidelines and mourn. Not walking out of the stadium proud, not yelling abuse from the sidelines, but standing there mourning that our world doesn't know the things that make for peace because they don't know Jesus. And this brings us to our final point. The final reason that Jerusalem didn't know the things that make for peace was that they didn't know they needed cleansing. To know peace, they needed to know cleansing. Jesus flashes the light right into the heart of the problem in verse 45. We read, When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. For God's people back then, the state of the temple was like a window into the state of their hearts. It revealed the state of their relationship with God. And Jesus said they'd turned God's house, a house of prayer, into a den of robbers. And Jesus, just like any other good king in Israel's history before him, cleanses the temple. And how do they react? The leaders plot his death. They can't recognize, they can't accept the idea that they need to be cleansed. They don't see their need for Jesus' salvation and so they reject him. And in rejecting Jesus, they reject their only hope for peace. Well, that was them. Again, what about us? Do we know that we can't know peace with God without being cleansed by Jesus? Do you realize that? You know, believing that there's a God 
that's not enough. We actually need to come to Jesus and, and be cleansed by Him. Now, chances are, we already know this, most of us, to be a Christian is to realise this and, and to turn to Jesus and to be cleansed. And in Jesus, we know that we've already been cleansed in the past, you know, once for all time. And because we're cleansed in the past, we've got complete assurance for the future. All sins, past, present, future, dealt with at the cross. You know, as 1 Corinthians 3.16 puts it, we're a cleansed temple. Paul writes, don't you know that you're God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We don't need to be cleansed anymore because Jesus cleansed us at the cross. And so we're already his holy temple. The question becomes for us instead, not do we know that we need to be cleansed if we've come to Jesus, but now having come to Jesus, do we know that we need to live the cleansed life? As Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. It's because we're already God's temple that we're to be who He's made us to be. That's why we glorify God now in our lives. Well, we're finally there. We've reached Jerusalem. The journey is is over. It's been pretty epic. And of course, Jesus' journey to bring us to God has just begun, and we'll see that on Good Friday and on Easter Sunday. Jesus is the unexpected Christ right to the end, right down to His unexpected arrival. He's the victorious King who comes to Jerusalem to die, and yet who weeps not for Himself, but for His people. A humble leader who who dies to make the way of peace open to all of us. Jesus is truly avant-garde, as we've seen. He's radical, unorthodox, countercultural, confronting, and yet at the same time somehow comforting. Having been on this journey with Jesus, what do you think of him? He calls us, as we've seen, to to give up everything to follow Him. Do you think it's worth it? In the end, to know the way of peace is to know Jesus, to know joy at the thought of His return, to know sorrow at the sin out there and the sin in here, and to know our desperate need for Him to cleanse us and His ability to do it. The comforting thing about knowing Jesus is that when we know Him, we know that He won't ever weep over us when He returns. But as we read in Revelation 21.4, instead He'll wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the love of Jesus that drove him to a city that did not love him. We thank you, Lord, that he went to the cross to make a way of peace for us, peace with you, 
even though it cost him his life and meant losing peace himself. Lord, as we come close to the end of our series, help us not to forget the things that Jesus has shown us about what it means to follow him. As we count the cost, to see that following Jesus means giving up our very selves, our lives, our all to follow him. Help us to see that it would be stupidity to try to cling to these things and lose everything when because of Jesus we can have peace with you and eternal life. Lord, we thank you for the love of Jesus that is unlike anything in our world that is radical, unorthodox. Lord, help us to see just how wonderful it is to know it and to feel it and Lord, to be willing to share it with others as well. Lord, we thank you so much that Jesus is like this, a king, humble, who weeps over us and who makes a way for us to be lifted up and to be a part of this world that you are bringing about. We long for this. Help us to long for it more and more. And we ask that you would send Jesus back to us soon. We pray in his name. Amen.